Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, for those who are not familiar with our evening services worship, I've been doing a series on this book, on the prophet Ezekiel, and it is my honor and my privilege to give a taste of it to all of you this morning. It is a quite strange book, but it is the word of God for us, and to more this morning we read from chapter 4, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 17. Ezekiel chapter 4, read, receive this with love and with faith. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thus says the Lord, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battery rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city. And set your face toward it. And let it be in a stage, state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but now on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I, place, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. In your food that you shall eat by the weight, by weight, 20 shekels a day, from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a barley cake baking it in, the side, in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung. 
on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because after punishment. There are a handful of meals in my life that I'll remember forever. There's El Lomo, the most tender and juicy filet this earth has ever seen. We had that at a restaurant in Buenos Aires when, where Mari and I went into our honeymoon. There's also the endless really endless shrimp buffet I went, with, went to with my family on our last trip together before my parents were divorced. There's the first time after we were married that Mari prepared my favorite food, spaghetti. <laughs> and I was sure after the first bite that I had married up. <laughs> Unfortunately, I also still remember some horrible, terrible meals. There's the unknown chicken thing served in a bucket at a youth retreat, of course. And we asked the cook, what was that? And tentatively, she said, this is like chicken noodle soup. There's a time when one of the guys in a Bible study small group ordered some pepperoni pizzas, so, so far so good, but with a caramel syrup topping just because it was free to add it. However, aside from those extremes, most meals I've had, thousands upon thousands, clearly, have been mostly forgettable. If you were to ask me what I had for lunch or for dinner two days ago, I, would, I don't think I would be able to answer you. Yet, as I look back, I know those average and mostly forgettable meals nourished me in every single one of those days, sustaining me, keeping me alive until now. Some were extraordinary. Most of them plain out ordinary just like all the days in which I had them. Food, as you see, is a very good metaphor for life. But if that's the case, why does it look sometimes that we have a bigger share of the bad ones? And I mean days, not meals. If God sustains us by giving us daily bread, why does it feel that we are day-to-day -day eating the so-called bread the devil himself has needed? Even if you are unfamiliar with this Brazilian expression, you understand what it means, I'm certain, to live each day as if each day was another bite in a sandwich filled with unhappiness cooked on a misery-filled grill. Why does it have to be like this 
you may ask. Just like the exiled people of God were asking about their share of misery in exile as we come to the book of Ezekiel. Today, to answer that question, God tells his prophet to literally, and I mean literally, eat a defiled piece of cake as part of his first act of public, public ministry. And that, as strange as it sounds, has a lot to do with how we live our lives in this world. As we look at Ezekiel's not-so-great Babylonian bake-off, we will look into the depths of our sin and rebellion, and we will, we will wonder together and be marveled together at the good news of the banquet Jesus offers to those who are united to him. In summary, today we will see from Ezekiel 4 that only God can provide what we desperately need. Again, only God can provide what we desperately need. We will see that in three points this morning. And first, our pride blinds us from seeing our God. Again, our, our pride blinds us from seeing our God. We see that in verses 1 through 3. As I announced that we were going to Ezekiel, you may have asked as we read the text this morning, how did we go from the wheels within the wheels to a pup grilled cake? Let's do a quick review of our, of our book so far. In the first three chapters of this book, God calls and commissions a prophet for himself. Ezekiel, as we saw, was meant to be a priest, actually, but he was exiled to Babylon, part of a first wave of captives taken there before the eventual total destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. There, in Babylon, as we are told at the margins of the Kebar Canal, God appears to him and calls him to be his prophet to his people in exile. Yet, we also saw that there, and you can read all about that in chapters 1 and 2, God came as an enemy from the north, the divine warrior coming to judge, not to save his cold, stubborn-hearted people. At least not yet. He will save them. But this brings us then to Ezekiel chapter 4, where God tells the priest turned prophet to perform, so to speak, his message in a series of things we call sign acts. Ezekiel will attempt to pierce the stubbornness barrier of the people's hearts by embodying, quite literally, sometimes, God's message of judgment for them. In the words of a commentator, these signs are not merely visual aids. They are designed to reach people's wills and hearts, enabling people not just to hear the truth, but to feel it. So the first sign, which we see in verses 1, and three, 1 to 3, involves a diorama. Ezekiel would take a, mo, a, a clay brick, mold it as if it were Jerusalem, and then he would surround it, and we are told repeatedly, against it, all kinds of siege weapons, way more than would be needed to capture 
a city as big as Jerusalem. The point is to show, to predict even, that when the Babylonians finally come for them, as the old saying goes, resistance is futile. At this point, whoever was walking by the Kebar Canal and saw this guy playing miniature war games with bricks would imagine, okay, the next step is God would come and would stomp with his mighty foot and his big hand. The miniature-sized Babylonian green army guys, they're battering rams, all will be well. But then we read in verse 3, to the surprise of the original readers, that Ezekiel would play the character of God in that demonstration, but with a twist. Ezekiel borrows a frying pan from his wife, probably, puts it between him and Jerusalem, and frowns. He frowns hard. God is not coming to save them. God is behind an iron wall. Can you imagine walking in the streets and seeing something like this? Prophet Ezekiel, looking straight ahead, very angry at an iron pen between him and the Jerusalem Lego set. And then it hits you. Not only will the Babylonians surround Jerusalem with a siege, but God will surround the heavens around it with a frown. Not only he would not intervene, but this imminent bloody massacre was wrought by his own hand. As we try to interpret what all of this means, as someone once said, paraphrasing the Bible itself, the truth will set you free, but not until it is done with you. This is a fair summary of Ezekiel's message in total. It answers any exiled Jew asking, why is this happening to us? Before God can save them from exile, they must understand why they were sent there in the first place. And for that to happen, for the truth to shine forth, God will have to break their pride first. Because you see, the promised land, Jerusalem, the temple, they were all concrete signs of God's love for his people throughout centuries. But the people gradually transformed them, those things, into sources of pride. They thought that God would always be on their side as long as they, had, they were in the land and they had the temple. That was enough for God to protect them from their enemies. They mistook the gifts for the giver. They mistook the signs for the, the thing which they signified. To paraphrase Pastor Larry, it was as if they stopped to eat at McDonald's and then sat by the golden arches sign waiting for the hunger to go away. So the first question that this text asks of us is, in what ways do we do the same? In what ways do we take God for granted? 
It's easy for us to realize how most non-Christians do it by simply assuming a generic we're all children of God mentality and live the world, whatever the, their lives, wherever they want. Or simply playing out, enjoying life in this world without even considering the possibility of a creator for which we must pay account. Yet, the hard part for most of us is that believers are also not immune to this. Some of us maybe strongly hold to theological convictions in a way that does not result in a greater love for God and for others. Quite the contrary, we use that to oppress other people. Others do the opposite, maybe, and throw themselves hardly at any activity in the church because deep down they believe God would never pay back their efforts, their constant and faithful efforts of being here with suffering or pain. If we work hard, He will work hard for us, some of us believe, which is, again, taking Him for granted and confusing the gifts for the giver. Until the exiles realized it was God, not land or temple that kept them safe, they will not understand their need for salvation. And the same goes for all of us, believers or not. And when we realize this, we are left wondering the same questions we confessed in our confession of faith this morning. So in our second point, we will see that we cannot pay our debt to God. We cannot pay our debt to God. We'll see that in verses 4 through 8. The second sign Ezekiel performs is a continuation of the first, but now he plays a different role. Tied up in ropes, he will lay down by the miniature siege of Jerusalem, and as we see in verse 7, preach against it a message of impending doom. He will lie on his left side for 390 days, then on his right side for 40 more. And as the prophet does that, he will bear the punishment of Israel and Judah, as we read in verses four, 5 and 6 a couple of times. So now again, put yourself in the shoes of a passerby as the guy is lying there looking at the miniature siege. One, two, three, four days, weeks. How long would it take for people to begin counting and do the math? that he did 390 on one side and then 40 on the other. Weird much? And while a diorama of a siege under, a, under the frown of an angry God, as hard as it is to take in, is relatively easy to understand that message. There's Jerusalem, there's an army, there's God. I, I, I get all of those. What on earth is that old guy lying on his side next to it, we might ask. First, God himself explains to us that each day of lying down represents a year in Israel's history. So if we count from now 
this moment in Ezekiel, and go back 390 years, we will be more or less in King Solomon's reign as he builds the temple in Jerusalem. And all those things already come to our minds. The land was expanded. The temple was built. Everything was well. But as great as Solomon's dynasty was, it was around that very same time that things started to unravel. We read in 1 Kings 11, for example, that Solomon built altars for idols at the end of his life throughout the land of Israel. And then soon after he died, the nation was split and suffered under that never-ending sequence of wicked kings, one worse than the previous. Ezekiel's forced reclining stance represented the punishment for that downward spiral. A day for a year for all of those years of wickedness. And then he would turn to the other side and lie down for 40 days more, now representing the 40 days of puni- 40 years of punishment that was coming ahead. And then specifically for the house of Judah, which was a southern kingdom that was exiled to Babylon. 40 years of punishment coming ahead, away from the land. Does that sound familiar? It should. While they will spend actually more than 40 literal years in Babylon, this picture of 40 years wandering would hit hard any stubborn-hearted Israelite right in the guts as they realized they were going through the exact same miseries as the generation that perished in the wilderness at the Exodus. And moreover, Ezekiel, the representative of God before them and of them before God, could do nothing for them. He's powerless, lying down, tied in ropes. Because you see, if he was a priest in Jerusalem as he was destined to, he eventually would take part in the temple sacrifices that system that was put into place to represent the necessity of blood to bear the sins of the people away. Yet there are no sacrifices, temples, or priests in Babylon. In his 430 days of public humiliation, Ezekiel was merely depicting for the exiles their sins and its consequences. In the words of Dr. Ian Duguid, the goal of the sign act is to represent the mountainous accumulation of Israel's sin, ready to tumble down on the heads of this present generation. He has been piled up. Now they reach the point of no return. Centuries of idolatry, wickedness, pride, must be accounted for. And what is worse, no sacrifices, no scapegoating could pay their debt, cover their sins, or remove the iron skillet barrier between them and God that was actually put there by them 
themselves. So as we look at ourselves then in that picture, I wonder if some, maybe not all, but some of our frustrations with this life, some of our impression that we are constantly eating a bread needed by the devil himself, comes from us not realizing what we just saw. Not realizing we are powerless to fix our problems because we refuse to admit we don't have all the answers. I was struck by this feeling this week after three or four trips to three or four different stores and then hours of Amazon browsing to still not find a specific part that I needed to connect two tubes and finish a small craftwork project I'm doing. All of that, all of that punishment, deserved punishment, because I refused to swallow my pride, to finally accept I live in a place where people measure things by fractions of the 12th part of someone else's foot, and ask for help, simply ask for help from someone who knows those parts and fractions better than I do. Today, Ezekiel is reminding us that when it comes to our problem of taking God for granted, there is nothing we can do to fix it. Thinking back on my own experience, some people will try to ignore this God problem, live forever, with an empty existential stomach, the way I would feel if, because of my difficulties, I just gave up on my project and it was left there, unfinished me, unfinished, accusing me of my incapacity. Others, on the other hand, will keep trying. They'll pray harder. They'll fast more. They'll read the Bible faster and louder. Yet they'll live in the eternal frustration because these things by themselves will not atone for your sins or redeem your soul. Just like buying more random parts will not solve my tube connecting problem. Only when we let go of our pride, we will see that only God, again, can provide a way for us to return to Him and end this mortal, existential, sinful exile that we live in right now. So we will see that in our last point this morning, that Jesus is God's supreme sign act that reunites us to God. Again, Jesus is God's supreme sign act that reunites us to God. We see that in verses 9 through 17. We see in these verses the final act of this three-part performance by Ezekiel. And this final act has something to do with his diet. In verses 9 through 11, the measurements for food and water that we will read there, let me tell you, those that he would ingest during those 430 days, that represent a diet that would kill anyone from starvation. 
if you try to eat and drink as many food and water as he was told to do here. And the mixture of ingredients means that during the siege of Jerusalem, no, sorry, no one would find enough grains of only one kind to bake a single loaf of bread. That's why he had to go to all kinds of different sources. So as he goes on that diet, and the 430 days went by, once again, bystanders would come and see Ezekiel day by day, languishing and wasting away. And if that's a horrible sight to see, that's on purpose. God explains that this represented how miserable and terrible their punishment would be when the Babylonians came. He talks about anguish and anxiety and despair. The same despair that you would probably find when you saw someone wasting away, tied in ropes in the middle of the street. Interestingly, interestingly, I just found out recently, through one of you actually, about a brand that sells something called Ezekiel 4.9 bread. Claiming that the combination of grains that we find in that verse, combination of grains and veggies, has an extra kick of healthiness. Let me be very clear. What we have here is not a healthy mixture of grains. It's the bakery's version of Scrapple. And if I may say so, it's the bread that the devil himself needed. And then, if it is possible, it is, it gets worse. God tells Ezekiel to bake the Scrapple cake on top of poop? Human poop? Let me tell you, there are no... Well, actually, in the Hebrew tricks here, fire up, Ezekiel, the human pup grill. I have to tell you now that I fail to find any reference to this baking method at the back of the Ezekiel 49 bread packaging. <laughs> but more interestingly than making fun of that bread, this instance that we find here is the only occurrence in the entire book where Ezekiel protests something. He's a great model of an obedient prophet, except for this very moment. In verse 14, he tells God that he never ate, he has never eaten anything defiled, not even after he went to exile. And then we see that God, hearing that, relents, sort of, and allows him to cook his bread on cow poop. I believe with this back and forth that seems that God is changing his mind, and I don't believe he is, I think what's happening here is that God, once again, as we've seen in chapter 3, he is testing Ezekiel. Ezekiel needed to commit to God's holiness while living in a foreign land to be God's messenger. So when God says, eat something defiled. If you were to merely say, well, sure, fine, we're already here, 
he would have demonstrated that he was willing to break God's law. Dr. Duguid again, Ezekiel stands then as a picture of a righteous remnant. Though he is in exile, he nonetheless has managed to maintain his purity. As you look at this, you realize why eating defiled food is such a big deal in exile narratives that we find in the Bible, like Daniel, like Esther. More than eating healthy, this means a commitment to God's holiness. And Ezekiel passed the test because he has that commitment. commitment. Cow poop, it will be. For now, all joking aside, this is humiliation enough. However, as we look at this miserable experience the prophet underwent, we realize that he was pointing to something better and more remarkable that would come after all this misery. You see, the total time between the people of God going down to Egypt and reaching the promised land, going back, Egypt, and then going back, was 430 years. We read that in Exodus 12. So in this sign act, Ezekiel points, at least tentatively, to a glimmer of hope that after those 430 years pass, a new exodus would come after this period of punishment and suffering. But more than that, we already saw that just being in the land will not be enough. Just going back won't be enough. And thank God that there's more. Because in his insistence on keeping his ceremonial purity, Ezekiel represents to us the hope of one day someone finally being able to be so pure as to be able to indeed, and not just pictorially, take upon himself the sins of the people and reconnect them to God. Here he was just a picture of something that was out of their reach, but he is picturing something for us, or at least putting in our hearts the longing for someone who can actually do this for real. And when he plays both in these three sign acts, both the character of God and the people of Israel, he depicts for us, he foreshadows for us, Jesus, the man who was God, and God who became man. Quote, an act far, far more restrictive and humiliating for divine glory than anything Ezekiel undertakes says one commentator. In his incarnation, Jesus willingly undergoes pain, suffering, and humiliation so that he, the truth incarnate, the bread of life, could set you free in his resurrection. You see, Ezekiel anticipates the one who came not only to tell us something about our sins, not only to represent their, their, the sins taken away, but to bear them on himself, on his body, as the final and defini definitive priestly sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, 
He ingested and absorbed God's wrath, the wrath that we were due because of our pride. And in his resurrection, Jesus leads us out of our spiritual exile into a heavenly inheritance. Until then, we are left waiting with the sign acts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Strengthened by them as they sensorially communicate the gospel to us. Our baptism points to our need of cleansing and purity. The Lord's Supper sustaining us each week in its spiritual nourishment. Bread and water that Ezekiel lacked and now given to us in abundance. So as we gather weekly to feed on God's word like we're doing right now, we become then synax for this world to see. Inviting passerbys to join us as we anticipate the great banquet our Savior is preparing for his people back home. A feast to celebrate our wedding to our Savior bride, our Savior groom, and our arrival at home. That's all we ever needed. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose creation and the works of whose hands we are, grant us to know that we exist and move in you alone, so that we may submit ourselves to you, not merely directed by your secret providence, but showing ourselves your willing and obedient followers. Then, may we endeavor to glorify your name in this world until we arrive at the enjoyment of that blessed inheritance laid up for us in heaven through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, and together we say, Amen.